Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People podcast is offered freely. Everything's free. It's a free show. It's made available to you for free. It's a listener-supported program. Your support makes a difference. Do you want to support the show? You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Thank you. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Other People Program, the Other People Show, the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I have a very good episode for you today. Abigail Tartelin's back on the program for a second time. She is celebrating the publication of her latest novel. It is called Dead Girls. It is available in the United States from Rare Bird Books. And it was the official November pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. The NervousBreakdown.com is uh, my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club. For more on that, go to the NervousBreakdown.com. So uh, I loved talking with Abigail Tartelin. She's a lot of fun. And uh, we get into it. We get into all sorts of different things, including uh, British politics, which is something that I sort of follow, but not as well as I should. And uh, she's really astute on all that stuff. She's sort of, uh, you know, we have a lot in common on that front. We're both kind of political junkies. So I was learning a lot from her about British politics, this, uh, you know, Brexit, this election that's coming up, how everything's sort of coming to a head over there. And uh, in the aftermath of our conversation, Abigail actually launched her own podcast called Election Schmelection, which, you know, you can listen to on all the usual channels, Spotify, Apple, Google Play, whatever. Uh, again, the show is called Election Schmelection, and it will provide you some excellent insight into the, uh, the British version of uh, the political shit show. We have our own over here, obviously. So uh, what else? what else can I tell you? I have some low back pain. I've been dealing with that. I've been a little cranky. I get a little cranky when I can't move, you know, as well as I'd like. And I'm being sort of obstinate and I'm trying to do stuff anyway. But uh, hopefully I'm coming out of it. I'm just having one of those episodes. I'm getting old. People are like, well, what happened? I'm like, nothing. You know, that's the whole, 
tragedy of it. I didn't do anything. I wasn't deadlifting anything. I just, I don't know. I don't know what happened. All of a sudden my back hurt. I couldn't move. I'm sure there was some sort of repetitive stress situation happening. Things I didn't realize I was doing. Postures. I don't know. I use a stand-up desk. I don't even sit down. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe I need to sit. Maybe I'm killing myself by standing. So, uh, I don't know. I've been, I've been cranky. I've been, uh, you know, more critical than usual. What was I criticizing earlier today? I was criticizing people who post these really elaborate and gooey, like, birthday messages for their, their spouse or significant other on Instagram. Shut up. Okay? We don't need to hear this. Why do you need to make a big, ostentatious, like, showy display? I know the world needs more love. I know the world needs positivity. But that's not what it's about, is it? It's an advertisement for self. You're proud of the fact that you're in a relationship, or you feel some weird social pressure to compete with other people who are doing the same stupid bullshit. And by the way... (laughs) The reason I know about this is I've fallen prey to it. I've made like a tweet on my anniversary before. Why am I doing that? What the fuck? My wife's not even on Twitter. Stop it. It's your problem. I'm talking to myself. What else has been bothering me? Oh, yeah, like self-care. Because I have this back injury, it's like all this, like, I'm getting all this wellness and self-care advice. I've had it up to here with that stuff. Stop it. The Peloton. <laughs> yeah, the commercial. People getting Everyone's got a Peloton. It's got to stop. Where is it going to stop? It's never going to stop until everyone's just locked away in their own house. Like simultaneously online and uh, spinning with their Peloton virtual instructor. I hope you had a nice Black Friday. Did you get a Peloton? Did you take care of yourself? Did you engage in some self-care? Did you practice self-care? You gotta practice. You need to work on that. Did you post something elaborate on Instagram about Thanksgiving? Did you take a picture of your family? Talk about all the things you were grateful for in public just so everybody knows how blessed you are? Did you do that? Alright. I told you, I have, uh, it's not sciatica. I don't have any tingling or anything. I'm just achy and I'm kind of crooked. If you could picture me. The fact that I'm even podcasting in this kind of pain. The things I do for you, I don't think you realize. I can't even stand up straight. I'm, I'm barely hanging on to my desk talking into this microphone. I give everything to this show, including my physical health. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. 
It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My guest today is Abigail Tartelin. Her brand new novel is called Dead Girls, out there now in the United States of America and uh, Canada from Rare Bird Books. It was the official November pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. You're going to like this one. You ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Here she is, folks. This is Abigail Tartelin, and her novel, One More Time, is called Dead Girls. I'm in Hackney in London, um, which is a very hip uh, slash quite impoverished neighborhood, um, but a lot of artists live here. Um, And I'm moving house tomorrow. I'm moving in with my partner. So I am in his flat. He's a performance artist and he's currently at a festival that he's performing in. So I'm alone, surrounded by piles of our belongings as if I was in some sort of storage container and because it's london he lives in an extremely small and very expensive studio apartment (laughs) and moving is just a pain in the ass too right yeah it's such a pain i you know to because obviously i'm not going to have internet when i move in and i come from a really rural county really really rural and lots of brexiteers and ukip it was it was i think the number one place for voting brexit and uh, we have barely any internet which is probably why people are so grumpy that they would vote to leave the European Union. <laughs> and so I knew that I couldn't be there to Skype in with you and I couldn't be in uh, Margate, the town we're moving to. Um, and so I came back today. But um, this part of London is notorious for having everything stolen from you. So I've just had to move everything I own in from the car into this apartment. And so I'm surrounded by these heaps of clothes and piles of our belongings. And um, we're heading off tomorrow very early because we have to be back in London for my partner to do his gig that he's doing. So, um, But I think that's moving for everyone. You have to fit it in around your life, don't you? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. And like if you left your stuff in your car, you're saying that it might get lifted while you're doing this interview? <laughs> oh, oh, my God. There was this family with little kids um, the other week on the street who were loading themselves into a taxi and somebody ran by and swiped the bag with all their passports in the other week. Good God. So, yeah, we're hoping to have a family. And so we're, we're kind of moving away from the area um, and going to live at the seaside, which will be very nice. Oh, that sounds I, lovely. Yeah. And I know you have kids because you t- tweet really funny things about them. So yes. how many do you have? Do you have a kid or multiple? I, I have two. And what are their, like, how old are they? They're nine and four. And uh, my son, who is four, was up all night, like, puking. He just, like, I guess he got, oh. my daughter had it, like, last week, and now I guess he's got oh, it. Oh, no. 
So it's been one of those nights. Get ready if you're going to have kids. It's like you have fun experiences like this. <laughs> yeah. I suppose you do all of your work without sleep now. You have to, you have to adjust. I mean, you find, I don't know, it gets better as they get older, obviously. But I think, you know, when you're a parent, you learn like what a baby you were prior to having kids about sleep. (laughs) I used to think I wasn't getting sleep and then you become a parent and you realize how much you can actually do. Um, but having said that, I, I think that there is something, um, distasteful about like competitive stressing and people feeling proud of how little sleep they're getting. I think that's sort of idiotic. Uh, I think sleep is great. I think getting good sleep is great. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I, I'm at a stage of my life just pre where I'm sure all my compatriots are about to have kids. And what I really found annoying about, I mean, I actually love living with people. I, I think living with just me and my partner is going to be really quiet. Um, but I had three flatmates before. Um, I, I've moved out of my place already. I actually live above him. That's how we met. He's my neighbor and living with three people who most of us work. Um, I mean, actually I work from home, but the other three work kind of 12 hour shifts cause they're all in the film industry and the, the kind of competitive talking about how busy and how stressful and how tired we are and how, you know, nobody, nobody has time to sleep. It just really gets on my nerves. I feel like, well, you know, if, if, if the work is, I mean, I'm a big believer in workers' rights and, you know, being paid a a good amount and things. But if it's, if it's too much, quit, quit that job. If you hate it and if you're going to complain about it every night, quit that job and go, go, let's go do something else. Right. Um, I find it depressing. It's like, really, this is as human beings, (laughs) this is the best we can do. We can all sit around in our adult years, like trying to outdo one another about how miserable we are. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's weird that I feel like you're describing London, but you're in L.A. It's the same here. I mean, it's I don't know. There's different variations on the same theme, I feel like. Yeah. So so I have to ask a a question out of curiosity because Mm -hmm. you you mentioned your partner as a performance artist. Yes. Uh, What does that mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he so it means really different things depending on what that act is um i met him maybe a year and eight months ago something like that and uh, when i moved in and i was being neighborly and uh, i delivered an amazon package to him i took one in for him and uh, when i delivered it i said to him oh so what's 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 in the box because he was attractive and <laughs> i thought i would keep talking to him and he said um, it's a, it's an autobiography of a, um, feminist performance artist. And, and then I thought he was really interesting. So I said that I would come to his next gig and his next gig, the first one that I saw, he, um, gets drowned by another performance artist called Noemi, who, um, is in a wheelchair and she is part of the audience. And you think, oh, she's just sat in the audience and, she sat in a place where you would think a wheelchair user would sit. She's like at the very front and people are being kind of like shepherded around her. And you get this kind of, it really makes you question your own um, understanding of, oh, that person's vulnerable. Or, and, and then um, Phil, my partner, comes on, um, takes all his clothes off because performance art is generally naked, um, which was surprising at first. I, I didn't know that world at all. And then he kneels down in front of this terrarium full of water 
And uh, Noemi then enters the stage area. And um, so we were, like everybody watching, was pretty surprised that she was part of the act. And then she holds his head under the water. And he's done this um, deep sea diving, breathing thing. So he, he can he can have his face underwater for minutes at a time. And then, you know, when he's had enough, he kind of pushes against her hand. But it looks like she pulls him out. So she was doing this repeatedly for about 45 minutes. And then on stage, there was this incredible um, reversal of power or, or as if all his power was going into her. And she was just staring at us, not with no real you know, expression on her face, but just looking at everybody in the eye as she held him down. And at the end of the act, he looked completely devastated and broken. <laughs> and um, she left the stage and we were all just watching her like, oh, my God god that woman is just so sexy and powerful and incredible um so he does kind of things like that he questions and plays with the idea of masculinity he's got a very stereotypically masculine body he's very muscular um his day job is as a is as a personal trainer um and he's very into fitness so he like plays with how people might perceive him um and they're, they're kind of, yeah, so the, his works are, are, are mainly like that. It's him and maybe a, maybe another person. Um, and you, they're very random. <laughs> One of his, like, most famous works is has Buto in it, this Japanese dance. And then also he bleeds from his face. And it, it sounds very weird when I'm saying it, but he, they're really emotional to watch, actually. And he's naked doing all this. He's naked, yeah, generally. Wow. He did one where he was clothed with a chair and it went down very well. And he, he started to be like, hey, maybe I could maybe I could wear pants. <laughs> uh. <laughs> wow, this is such an interesting way to get to know somebody. And I also yeah. feel like, uh, you know, in light of your work, like I, I can see the I can see why you guys would be a good match. I mean, you have right? similar thema- <laughs> you have similar thematic interests. Yeah, as soon as he told me he was reading a book about a feminist performance artist and he was a performance artist who did stuff on masculinity, I was like this little geeky, you know, trying to be like, oh, oh, oh my gosh, I- I'm writing a book on masculinity. Oh, it's so cool. <laughs> and then I, I kind of geeked out and left. And I'm usually really good at kind of approaching guys and picking up, picking them up. <laughs> I'm, I'm very like, hey, I'm standing next to you and I'm, I'm not leaving. Um, it's because I'm waiting for you to give me your number or, and I, I I can be quite funny and you know go up to people and talk to them but I completely geeked out after I kind of hit on him by saying what what's in the box and and then I got starstruck and ran ran away and um but yeah I so the book I was writing at the time isn't dead girls obviously but dead girls has its own it there's a there's a masculinity angle in there isn't there with um her the main character's love interest and how it affects his um how what happens affects how he sees men and understands himself so yeah, yeah we have a lot of um similar themes well I, you know i can sort of I, I guess it comes it comes more easily to me to imagine how a woman would gravitate towards these themes uh but uh, mm. for a man to be exploring masculinity like that in his art seems to be more rare maybe i'm misapprehending it but would you agree yeah i'd agree yeah 
I think that some of the ways in which sexism affects women are so obvious and violent that, you know, it makes sense that there that feminism would come before um, men thinking about how sexism might affect them and how, you know, some some men and, and certainly not all men. It, I think it depends very much on the culture that you're growing up in. Um, my partner comes from a working class. He's he's East London. He's a Cockney. So he, he comes from a very working class, you know, highly um, machismo environment in a way. And I, I, I think that made him really think about it. But um, yeah, I, there are very few artists doing what he's doing. And I, I, we're starting to see some conversations about masculinity happen in London, but I've been really disappointed <laughs> in them so far. Um, I saw a, a panel discussion at a, at a theatre that was, it had two women on the panel. And I really felt like there didn't need to be two women on the panel. It's a conversation about masculinity. I'm interested in what men think about that topic. And it really turned into um, the men on the panel apologizing to the women for how toxic masculinity can affect women. And obviously, that's the stuff I write about. So I agree with it. But I do think, um, and again, this is kind of one of the themes that I play with, that in order for you to, in order for us to combat something like rape culture, it's equally and maybe even more important to talk to men about like their education and their upbringing and how they relate to women. And just to get people to introspect. I think that there has to, mm. I mean, I think that maybe in particular with men and in particular with the kinds of men who might fall prey to toxic masculinity or, um, you know, be raised in a culture that's like really heavy on machismo and certain, um, you know, certain structures like identity structures for how a man should behave. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of the time there is an inherent resistance to any kind, like any kind of exploration of inner life, which would seem to be like a fundamental part of making change. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's just like an obvious statement, but no, I think that, yeah, I, I, I mean, even if it is an obvious statement, I think some of the most right on <laughs> things are like very, they're the obvious things that most people don't say. Um, and, um, sure. I think there's lots of the like m male leaders we have in the world are, are very opposed to introspection. And, and I, I feel terrible for people who have to live, have to grow up with that kind of toxic masculinity around them. Um, and never get to kind of explore who they are, what they really want. Um, I think that some people can have relationships that are really devastating, um, like domestic abusers. You can be, you know, obviously a perpetrator of domestic violence is somebody that we um, look at as quite evil. But, I mean, for me, you do what you're brought up to do. And if you were brought up in a different situation, you wouldn't do it. And I think lots of people do things that they regret so much and that could have been prevented um, by systematic social change and 
like I, I mean, I honestly, I'm, I'm very, um, a big believer in politics and that you can make policies. And, um, we, ha- I mean, we had so many, my mum worked in, um, in, uh, social care and social housing and then um on boards like end child poverty and the interventions that you make in the early years can really change an entire generation and how they treat people and how they think about themselves and so i find it so heart-wrenching that um so much so much of something like domestic violence or, or or rape culture is preventable and probably the 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 perpetrators feel often feel terrible about what they've done and often feel like I wonder why I can't make a relationship work and I wish I didn't get so frustrated and uh, never because of you know I mean it seems like such a basic idea but because of toxic masculinity and the stereotype of what a man should be like never really are encouraged by society around them to think through those you know, why does this happen to me? Why am I doing this? Maybe I should go get therapy. I mean, that's something in the UK that's such a, um, people just wouldn't do it. I mean, myself included. I, I've grown up in a, an environment coming from working class people where I just think of those things. I think of therapy and think how embarrassing. I shouldn't do that. But then I, I did recently, and it was great. Yeah, you're like, what, what, I've, been miss, I've been missing out. This stuff is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I want to talk, I mean, last time we spoke was when you were publishing Golden Boy. Yeah. Uh, so that was a few years ago. And yeah, it was I'll, a while ago, 2013, yeah. Okay, wow, yeah. So almost, what, six years ago. So yeah. a lot has happened. Tell me, can you talk a little bit about the the uh, path that you've been on creatively since then, because that book got quite a reception. It, it did. I'm, I'm really pleased that it did. I, I think that in a way it would have been great if it had come out because it came out at the, at, in the very month that I think the New York times and the New York magazine published front cover stories about trans kids and so it came out at the like very beginning of this wave of trans activism and talking about gender in a really different way. And I, I, where um, BBC Films is making a feature film of it now, and I, I'm quite excited for that to come out because I feel like it's a better time. Like when when the book first came out, I think a lot of people didn't know what intersex was. Um, for your listeners who didn't listen to that podcast six years ago. <laughs> it's about an intersex teenager called Max. And um, so I, I'm quite excited for that to come out. Um, Process-wise, I had quite a, a tough time. I, I Three months after the book came out, my partner back then, we were living in LA, and he was hit by a car uh, going at 50 miles an hour in a 25 zone. Um, in the suburban neighborhood we lived where there were lots of kids and, and, um, and he ended up in hospital and, um, it was really touch and go for about a month and, uh, it really shook me. I, um, and in fact, that's what I ended up doing therapy for, um, because I was diagnosed with PTSD. I think a lot of those things, you just, you deal with them and cope with them and, and then you have to get on with your life. So um, it's really affected me creatively. And for a few years, I was 
writing things that were almost like replacing a therapy for me <laughs> and getting out a lot of my angst. Um, I wrote one manuscript called Mad Girls that I can't even really remember what it's about. It, um, and I feel like I just lost several years there. And then um, I wrote um, an, a really early draft of Bed Girls and I was kind of losing it a little bit and I said to my agent I'm just going to hand in I'd written two manuscripts over a summer and I was like just pick the one that you want wait you wrote <laughs> and, you wrote two books in a summer yeah <laughs> I I wrote Golden Boy in six months and it, so it's very frustrating for me that it's taken six years to write this book um it, it's been a really singular experience it's it, I, I'm very I take a long time to think of ideas but I'm very excited when I write something. And so I sit down and I go for it. Damn. Um, okay. So let me ask you a question. Uh, yeah. you, you know, you mentioned this accident and how it impacted your, your entire life, but in particular, um, your creative life. Uh, can you, can you t tell a little bit more about what happened? Like, were you, were you there? Were you in a car? Was he hit while he was walking? Like what? Right. I'm good. I, um, I'm sorry if my voice shakes while I'm talking about this. I'm still really nervous about it. But um, and, and by the way, you don't have to talk about it if you'd rather not. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's okay. I talked about it on a podcast recently that was a. It's called the Breakup Monologues. It's a. It's a jokey podcast about breaking up with people, and I I found it really helpful. <laughs> so, um, but I also think that it's it's important to be honest about your. I'm sorry, that's my phone. I turned it on loud so I could hear you call <laughs> um, about your creative journey and the things that might both help and hinder you write. And I think in the long run, it's helped me because it made me a bit calmer about what life's really about and what I want to say. And But at the time, it, it, it just really messed me up. Um, so he was... This is crazy, but we'd broken up that morning and he said, well, I don't want to watch you pack. So I'm going to cycle to a, a cafe and I yelled after him, don't wear your headphones. <laughs> and because um, I was really worried that he was going to like, um, you know, cry and listen to sad music and something would happen. And then um, I heard sirens while I was packing and I actually like had the door open. Um, it was a very balmy LA day. And uh, I went to the door and then I was like, no way, that never happens. You never hear sirens and anything's happened. You just, it's just silly worrying about people. And then um, I moved into temporary accommodation and um, his best friend called me and I had just gotten a new phone. So no one had my number. And his best friend figured out my number. I think he must have called like Facebook to a friend of mine or something and said he'd been hit by a car and he was in hospital and he was in a really bad way. And I had to go get there now. And um, no one knew that we had broken up. And um, so I got the neighbor who I had just met to drive me to this hospital. And... Um, they let me go in and he was very, very pale and had blood all over him. And they said that they'd done a um, scan on the top of his head because he had a um, subdural hematoma, which is like a blood clot on your brain. And they were going to do another one at four hours after he had come in. And if it was still spreading, he would probably die. 
And if it wasn't, he would probably live. And that was like the worst day of my life. I mean, when they took us for the scan, they let me be in the locker room where the doctors get changed because anything could have happened and they were being kind, I suppose. Um, but my my partner at the time kept waking up and ripping the monitor off himself because he didn't know what was happening. And so I would hear his heartbeat and then I would suddenly hear doo, and everybody would rush into the other room from the room where they were looking at the computers and rush into the room where they were scanning him and they would put the monitor back on him. But I didn't know what was happening. Okay. So I was thinking that he was dying and that they were rushing in to kind of restart his heart. Um and I, I just kneeled on the floor and like prayed to God. And I'm an atheist. And uh, <laughs> I, um, I spent about a month like that. In the, and they let me stay in the hospital because he was very touch and go. And um, it made me so vigilant. And and that's why I think it's important to talk about it because I, I think people who go through that, you feel kind of embarrassed to say that you have been diagnosed with PTSD or something because it's something that veterans are diagnosed with or people that have been through terrible earthquakes and or wars and um you know it was just a car accident in the end and in the end he got better and everybody moved on with their lives and we broke up eventually um but those feelings of vigilance come back to me every time that I'm in a difficult situation and every time I'm under stress I feel like hyper aware of everything ready to fight and um for months after the accident every time i well wherever i was i would imagine the worst case scenario and what i would do to protect the people around me and, and what i would need to be looking out for and how would someone die in this situation and it just seemed crazy and i just thought i was crazy for the longest time but i think that your brain just in that scenario for the first 90 hours after the accident i slept in half an hour since for seven hours and I was just watching his monitors all the time and the thing was I needed to be because there were a couple of times where um things happened where I had to go get a nurse or you know he went for an operation and I I demanded to be taken down to the operations level because I needed to tell them that he'd had a bad response to this anesthetic and they they said oh thank you because you know as the anesthetist we actually aren't privy to some of these things that happen and we didn't know that and we were going to put a line um into his neck and i said well he had a um, fractured cervical vertebrae and i don't think that would be a good thing to do because he's going to have a halo neck brace soon and they said oh shit we didn't really know that so you like yeah i know i you really need an advocate in hospital and you really need someone to be doing those this crazy stay up all night watching you things sometimes. Yeah. Um, well, and you don't realize how little doctors know until you're involved in a situation where somebody needs medical care. Uh, yeah. I, I've been through that uh, my, with my son, you know, he's got some special needs and, you know, I just, I guess like you just sort of expect that like everyone's going to be on, on their game and they're going to have the answers. And then you get into a situation like that and you're like, Oh my God, these are fallible human beings with limited information. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, how can you be fallible? <laughs> yeah, no, I need you to be perfect. <laughs> yeah, I, it must be so much worse when it's a child as well and you, you're completely responsible for them. Oh man, yeah, it's, it's not scary. fun. It's not fun. You have, you have to like, 
you know, my wife and I always say, like, we'll be having conversations about it and, uh, you know, something around medical stuff or therapies and what the best approach is. And, you know, one of the common refrains we come to is like, well, it's, it's up to us. Like no one's going to do this for us. Like doctors aren't going to, they're not going to really lead the way, you know, we have to figure it out. And I don't necessarily feel like that should be the case, but that is the case. And you have to sort of deal with reality, you know, as opposed to hoping that, you know, hoping for otherwise, because that's not going to help anybody. Yeah. Uh, it was really interesting. The difference as well between obviously in the U S in the UK, we have all our healthcare is public. Um, or actually we do have access to private healthcare, but I don't know anyone that, that goes to private healthcare. And then, um, being at UCLA, which is an incredibly well-funded hospital, and um, much classier than <laughs> than our hospitals. But then actually, like the care there was amazing. But then as, at a certain point, they're under pressure to send you home. And so I, I feel like there's like you're released from from their care at a point where you're like, wait, I don't I don't know what I'm doing. And, um, well, you should try having a baby in the United States. Yeah. They get you out of there in 24 hours. You know, they don't, they don't let you, they don't let you stick around. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So what part of uh, LA did this accident happen in? Um, Mar Vista. Mar Vista. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I ride my bike around and like, I often ride without a helmet. I should probably wear a helmet. (laughs) Uh, I, you know, it's funny. Some of the some people say they don't really make much difference, but I, I do think if you get hit and part of your skull is shattered, then what a helmet will do, they told us this in the hospital. <laughs> this is such a weird thing to be talking about. Um, but it keeps your head together so that, you know, a part of you can't fly off somewhere and never gets picked up. Oh, good. So that is the that is the plus side of a helmet, yeah. that it keeps it all together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, the thing is, though, is that like I usually ride to the gym. That's really where I ride most of the time. And I don't have any place to put a helmet. Like, I don't have a locker. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, it's just like a practical matter. But anyway, you know, I've been scolded many times. I have listeners of this show who write to me and they scold me. So I'm probably going to get some emails. Do you talk a lot about how you bike to the gym without a helmet? (laughs) No, I've mentioned it. I'm a big advocate of cycling in general. Like, I think L.A. is a mess. I think a lot of cities are a mess. Um, you know, like I don't have a car anymore. Like I gave up my car. I'll take, I'll take a lift or public transportation. I'm trying, I'm trying to see if I can do it a, and then I also genuinely want to like respond to the climate crisis in a way that involves some personal sacrifice instead of just lip service. You know, I feel it's very easy for me to fall into that anyway. Like, Oh, I'm tweeting about it. Look at me, you know? And, but, uh, (laughs) I I got, I got rid of my car and like, I was thinking about leasing another one. And then I was like, why, like, why would I, um, I start, if you do the math about like, uh, how much it would cost for me to take a, a lift or the train or ride my bike, it's like, you know, I'm saving money this way. And and until it becomes impractical, I'm going to try to go without. Totally. I think that's great. Um, on the topic of Twitter, I feel like, if, you know, for instance, there's because of um, what's happening in Syria, obviously, we Europe has had a lot of uh, Syrian refugees um, coming in to, your, to the European Union via Greece. And we have had a lot of courage, coverage about that in the UK. And I was just I, I so often see on Twitter, you know, some middle class person working in 
a, a great job in London, like retweeting five tweets about Syrian refugees. And then like by the evening, they're like drinking wine and getting angry and pissed off at things and saying like, <laughs> why hasn't my takeout come? And like, I, I think the thought is like, I'm such a good person. I retweeted five tweets about Syrian refugees today. You know, where is my delivery? And <laughs> I, I, I really find Twitter so problematic. Yeah, um, it's a lot of shouting. It's a lot of shouting. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. And not, a, not a lot of anything happening really. I, I, I think that about, um, me too. And I, I think Me Too has, you know, obviously it had a, a huge impact on the culture. But I also think, like I thought at the time, like, but you're just tweeting. And it, it definitely, like, raises awareness and changes the game and changes the conversation. But for those people who then don't do anything afterwards, uh, I find that so frustrating. Um, and we had, um, it's funny, I think a lot of my American friends are really engaged. I mean, my editor here, Julia, um, I think she was telling me about her participa participation in the Women's March. And then she was like, oh, and afterwards, I'm going to uh, sign up unregistered voters. Or, <laughs> you know, I'm going to go to my abortion clinic and I'm going to, um, you know, send away people who are demonstrating there. And and the, they feel so very active to me. And then I, a lot of the time in London, we, I mean, we had a women's march and it was like, there was just good food and a bad PA. And then at the time when we were supposed to leave, everybody left and everyone said, what a nice, nice thing to do. And like tweeted pictures about it. But I feel like social media, you know, brings a lot of that. I'm not really doing anything, but I'm going to talk about it. Yeah. So it's cool that you're, you know, you've gotten rid of your car. I um, used to walk in LA and people thought it was crazy. I mean, there's got to be a better way. <laughs> I, it's a, like, it's got the best weather. We like, why are we all encased in yeah. our cars? You know, it's like, yeah. it's the perfect city for biking, but there's just not proper infrastructure for it, you know? And I think, so my, my, my whole theory of the case is that somebody's got to be the guinea pig and get out there and exhibit the behavior. Like I've got to be out there on my bike, making people realize that it's a possibility. Uh, yeah. even if I'm like playing Frogger and dodging traffic and, you know, taking my yeah. life into my own hands. I but... mean, good luck out there. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so I want to ask about, uh, evil because, you know, dead girls deals with, um, I think it deals with that theme. I mean, it's about a murder and, um, you know, anytime, anytime something like that happens, it seems reasonable to consider why people do such terrible things. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you, I think we were talking a moment ago about, um, you know, domestic abuse and how these are often learned behaviors and how circumstances in a person's life can contribute to the way that they react emotionally and physically to stress or whatever it might be. Um, but when it comes to something as grim as the killing of a child, um, you know, there, there are any number of instances you could point to in the world where it's uh, defensible to think that somebody might just be a bad seed and that there is such a thing as evil in the world. And it's not just, you know, something that you can psychoanalyze, um, or maybe it is, maybe we all have the seeds of these kinds of destructive behaviors in us. And some of us have these seeds watered and others of us don't like, where, where do you fall on that particular argument? Wow. <laughs> um, what a 
question. I wish I'd written a simpler book, and then and then there would have been such, such difficult. Okay, so um, I love that analogy that there's a seed within all of us, and I guess I come down nearer that. Um, but I'm also a very, I think I'm very productive in my thinking. I like things to be productive, and I don't think that evil is a productive idea. What do you do if you say this murderer is evil or this pedophile is evil? Do you just leave them to be a pedophile or a murderer? You know, do you just lock them away when they commit commit a crime? But then the people who um, have those thoughts and impulses that you never find or they haven't committed the crime yet, they're just out there. I I don't think that you can make much much social change by thinking about the idea of evil um and it's it's an idea that comes from religion um and the enormous influence that religion has had on the development of the democracies that we live in and our politics and our cultures i don't Um, i don't disagree i don't disagree i would say the only thing that comes to mind for me um because i think i'm i'm like you i'm inclined to think like well we all have these seeds you know and sometimes um nature and nurture conspire to water certain seeds in some of us and other seeds and others of us, you know, a lot of it can come down to misfortune, frankly, if you're born into a bad mm. and abusive situation, you know, where these kinds of behaviors are demonstrated to you, then you're more likely yeah. to engage in them. But I read an article that haunts me. Uh, I forget almost everything I read, which is an embarrassing thing to admit, but um, <laughs> occasionally something will stick to me. And there was this article in the Atlantic, I think, about psycho uh, psychopaths and in particular it was about the parents of psychopathic children like as a diagnosis and it's horrifying as a parent because it's like you know neither of us are psychopaths we're normal productive adults (laughs) and we had this child we already had one baby and then we have another baby and you know it turns out that the uh, the elder child like we caught this child like trying to like light the younger sibling on fire drown the you know (laughs) And there are, it's a diagnosable thing. And then there's also, you know, a pretty compelling case to be made that it can be traced genetically, um, you know, that it's a, it's a trait that's passed on, you know, it might skip a generation. Wow. Yeah. And so you go, oh my God, yeah. like this is a possibility. Like, but you- then, but then like, if you think of that as evil, it's, it's a, it's a mental health issue and it, that, that is something that can be. I find it really difficult because I don't think necessarily you can treat something like a sexual impulse towards children. Right. But I, I was do just also that. think that like it's useless to say, oh, it's genetic, so you can't do anything about it. Like, of course you can do things about it. Well, that's what I, mean, I, that's what I was going to say, because like, I, I think like you think about evil, like pedophilia is right up there. You know, anybody who would would molest a child it's it's a it's a kind of a slam dunk case you know people will be like that's evil mm. but i also can be uh i can also think to myself i'm saying like what a horrible curse to be if this is if this yeah. is if this is indeed a genetic thing like it's like a uh, it's a sexual orientation you know much like uh like i'm attracted to women i'm a heterosexual guy and I've always found women delightful, you know, but like you to, can't do anything about it. Right, right. <laughs> and so I want to say I've I've read about pedophiles who recognize that they have this condition, if that's what you want to call it, 
and they also recognize the immorality of acting on it. Mm. Um, but that's kind of, I think it, I think it's widely acknowledged that a lot of people, a lot of pedophiles don't commit a crime until they feel that they absolutely have to, you know, they don't just do it all the time. Um, and you have, when it comes to psychopaths as well, you have this thing about like torturing animals and, and then like that, that it increases, but people don't just jump usually to, I'm going to murder everyone. Right. Um, and, and, and that's interesting. Like what is stopping them from doing that? Is, is that some sort of morality? And is that, um, I, I mean, I think they're very different things, pedophiles and psychopaths. Um, I think I, I know someone personally, and I'm not going to kind of talk about the, how, how I, the, you know, our relationship because it's identifying, but, um, I know somebody personally that I love that, um, committed a, a pedophilic act and they're dead now. So the, the person, um, so it was very difficult finding out that they did that. And I loved that person. And they were always good to me that I know of and can remember. But I also know that their childhood, in their childhood, they were abused in that way. And so I think that's one of the things that got me thinking about this. Because people who do this, you can't tell them on the street by the sign that they hold that says, I'm evil. And I, I, you know, they don't have, like, they're not a terrifying person they're not terrifying people to me. They usually just feel normal and then have this. And I'm not even sure it's about the impulse so much as about not having that boundary that says, don't touch a child. Um, That says this is an immoral thing to do. Yeah. So I I, I really in, in dead girls and in all my writing, I I like to discuss things and turn things over. I'm not somebody really who has these points of view that are, you can never change them. And I, yeah, they're, they're not very like set in stone. Well, and then, you know, if you just start saying, well, you're evil and that's it, (laughs) that doesn't leave much room for fiction, you know, (laughs) that not, doesn't tend to be the mode of the, of the fiction writer or the writer in general, you know, these things. Mm, Yeah. I'm a person who sees things as being endlessly gray. Um, and I'll give you an example. Uh, and I think this is, I, I did this on Twitter and I think I was reacting to Twitter, not in a, um, incidental specific way, but as like an accumulating, um, like an, after an accumulation of being on Twitter for too many hours over too many years. <laughs> um, but I said, I took, you know how you can take a poll on Twitter. Yeah. So I took a poll and my poll was an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind to respond to hatred and injustice with reciprocal hatred only serves in the end to perpetuate dark cycles of thought and behavior and pain for all <laughs> hatred never ceases by hatred, but through love alone is healed. And then I was like, true. Are you, I, are you- are you reading that or do you just remember that whole no, thing? No, no, I'm reading it. I'm reading it. I can't, I can't remember. I can't remember <laughs> I anything. Like, wow, I, you're a very <laughs> impressive person. <laughs> that's, that's correct. Yes, I am. Um, but I just, uh, I took a true false because like, not because I fall, you know, I feel certain of which way I think and I wanted to see if people agree with me, but because I find it complicated. You know, I think that, you know, you read wisdom books or you study the great religions or whatever it is and, 
you know, it's like, yeah, violence begets violence. Hatred doesn't cease by hatred. Like that seems solid to me. And yet I think there can be, you know, circumstances in the world where injustice is so overt and dangerous uh, and treacherous for the victims that, you know, it's like, good luck with that one. At some point you have to, mm. you know, you well, might have to strike back. Yeah, that's interesting because as as you were saying that, I was thinking, I'm going to mention that, you know, I would never, ever believe in or vote for the death penalty. But then I was thinking, but I would assassinate a world leader who had committed genocide or something. And then I thought, yeah, but I would do it in a quiet way so you wouldn't know that I'd approved it because I don't think that kind of thing should be approved in law because when you build a civilization, you have to say, let's be civilized. Let's not murder people, which I think the death penalty is murdering people. So it's not it's a very, it's not a very helpful form of justice. Um um, <laughs> and that's kind of what Dead Girls is about, <laughs> is that it's about vigilante justice. But I, it's about the fact that I think there are some situations in which I could commit it. Like, I, I served on a jury a couple of years ago at the Old Bailey, our central criminal court. There was a teenage defendant, 17. Um, he'd killed two people. He acknowledged it. But we were discussing whether he had murdered them, which is a legal term. Um, and I said to the, the rest of the jury, I could completely see myself in that situation and doing that thing. And this was the bit where I, I, I lost them. (laughs) (laughs) Some of them were like, I could not see myself stabbing someone, but I could see myself in a situation where, um, you know, somebody had, for instance, touched my child in the way that we are talking about. I could see myself flipping out. Um, if someone had killed my child, I could see myself completely like F my life. You know, I'm going to hunt that person down and kill them. Uh, and and if I was a jury member where somebody had done that in, in that situation, I could not in good conscience convict them of anything or send them to prison. <laughs> and I know that about myself, but... I wouldn't want that enshrined in law because I don't think that we should have laws that say it's okay to kill people. The same reason why I don't think we should have the death, anybody should have the death penalty. Um, and and so that that is like a little bit the theme of the book is that the logical reaction to somebody murdering your best friend is to try and find them and um, kill them because you're so mad at them and they've done an awful thing. And when you're a child, you think in those black and white terms that, like you say, as adults, it's kind of all gray, or I, I think it should be, that that things are very complicated. Um, but then, you know, when Thera, the main character, the 11-year-old who is thinking in these terms, when she encounters adults, suddenly the narration of the book that hopefully you're on board with, the adults show up and they're like, what are you thinking? <laughs> this this is um this is disturbing and this is not how we do things and so i i think that's super interesting the idea of like like it would be cool to tweet that you know if if the worst happened would you go and kill them (laughs) or like would you approve of them being killed or are you the kind of person who can take a step back and be like no you murdered my child but i i just want you to be in prison for 
20 years and that's it or for life i think the murder of a well, child in the right? uk it um in the uk we don't have that kind of thing you don't have life in prison i think that life doesn't mean life here um if you murder someone that you have to be in prison i think it's for 15 years it could be 12 hmm. but you you have to be in prison that long yeah. but then i mean personally i i don't believe in prisoners um punishment i believe that you should send people to be rehabilitated because again um punishing people in prison is just not productive um in the uk we have a recidivism rate of 50 to 60 percent um so it doesn't um protect people who are victims of crimes um, and we have a really punishing, disgusting prison system where our I, prisons are just like full of rats and litter. Oh, I was going to ask. I was going to ask. I was like, I was like, maybe the prisons are too nice. Like, I always wonder about recidivism, no. recidivism rates. Like, maybe it's like, you know, maybe it's a, uh, it's too comfortable. We need to make it so miserable that people really don't want to ever go back. But no, it's. I'm, I'm sure it's pretty miserable in the states. But I, when I lived in the states, it my friends used to say like, oh, you're so lucky to be from the UK. And I would always say to them like, you know what? We have a monarchy. We have a right-wing government. Like they're dismantling the NHS and then Brexit happened. <laughs> we are a right-wing country. And um, the only reason we've ever had left-wing governments is because um, of Scotland and Wales. England itself is extremely conservative. And... Um, we, I think we have a media that's our mainstream media is just terrible. They're not analytical at all. They're extremely right wing. They all come from a similar, in, incredibly upper middle class background. Hmm. Um, the the stories are all the same. And then when you look at independent media, they're talking about completely different things and stuff you would never hear about if you just switched on the news every night. And so our prisons, which I've been researching because I'm doing a book about it, are like really they're, they're overcrowded two or three people to us to a cell they mo like often you'll move into a cell where there's just litter all over it they don't clear the cells there's your furniture's broken you, you don't have heating there are rats in your cell like people shouldn't ever live in that circumstance but if you've had a really hard and and this was the interesting thing about being on that jury this kid had had such a hard life even at 17, no one loved him. No one was around for him. He didn't have a really good education. The The area where he lived was extremely violent, the culture that he lived in. And then you're sending people to this place where you don't have a support system. It's really violent. You're being told, like, you are trash, you know, and no one cares about you. And then you come out and you're expected to be a compassionate member of society. That's just not going to happen. Um, and the best recidivism rates are... In, there's a Norwegian prison, which has a, I think it's between 10 and 13% recidivism rate, where it's like just a really nice, they let them live in it. It's an island and they live in little communities and they take care of each other and they're responsible for things. And it's, it's they're treated pretty nice. And I, I honestly think if people are treated well, then they learn to treat people well. Yeah, um, I've heard, so, I heard too that like if you give, like sometimes they'll give like homeless animals yeah. To prisoners and like prisoners get to have like a cat and like that can even lower recidivism rates a little bit. Yeah. There's a prison in the States where they have a scheme um, where they raise guide dogs for the blind. And since that scheme, their recidivism rate has um, lowered um, a lot. 
Yeah. I mean, like that's yeah. the thing. Like, to, to, We have a big prison problem in the United States, to say the least. There's like private prisons. Mm-hmm. It's basically, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's very racially loaded the way that yeah. the prison system and the enormous prison population exists in the States right now. And, um, you know, I think politically it's always a hot potato because if you talk about radically rethinking the way that we... Um, administer justice. And if you start bringing up things like rehabilitation instead of punishment, then you can easily get mm. pigeonholed as being weak and soft on crime. You know what I'm saying? Sure. All, all the easy like political punches that people can throw, but it's way past time, I think, to have like an adult conversation about like what this should really look like and like what the, yeah. out- what are the outcomes that we really want to deliver to society? You know, it's like, I think, mm. I think so many people just kind of want to make certain people go away, you know, and, uh, they don't give a wit about their humanity. And, um, again, it kind of goes back to my tweet, uh, survey. Yeah. (laughs) Like if we just eye for, if it's an eye for an eye and you just, you know, you respond to, you know, brutal behavior with brutal behavior. I don't know if anybody wins in the end. And, uh, just for people, for people listening, uh, you know, the, the poll turned out to be 61% felt it was true. And 39% felt it was false with some relatively heated comments in the thread below. Um, But I don't know. I I actually, I don't think, I don't think I think it's true. I think it's kind of true. I think it sort of depends. And so, wait, is that 61% thought an eye for an eye was wrong? No, 61% thinks an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And that, you know, responding to hatred with hatred just perpetuates dark cycles. Right. Um. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think that's sort of ultimately true, but there's also like a a, a more relative level of existence where, you know, situ- well, situationally it can be different. Okay, I'm going to vote. I think that it's true. <laughs> I think an eye for an eye does make the whole world blind, but it's uh, it's really hard to emotionally get there as a human being when you've been wronged. And I, I think, like, that's really what we're talking about, right? Because... You, you, these things that like these crimes are so horrifying that you feel really emotional about them, and you your response is like childish in a way, and really to be, I mean, where I used to have this Instagram name, civilized animal, because um, we're all animals, and that's how we instinctively react. But in order to be in a civilization, you you actually have to change your behavior. We're not instinctively civilized. This is something that we've decided to be. And I think in a civilization, what you do is you think, like, what's best for the civilization? And so you can't take an eye for an eye. You've got to think, well, what's productive about how we're going to, you know, what is, what's a productive way to deal with a criminal? Mm. And obviously, it's to put them in a a really nice cell give them access to education and give them a way to give back um which the guide dogs for the blind there was um they did a little documentary on youtube um and one of the prisoners i think he was in for life he wasn't getting out but he said um i was such a negative person and now that i'm raising guide dogs i really feel like you know before my whole impact on the world was just negative and i was just worth nothing and now my impact on the world can be good i do have a chance um and his whole attitude had changed and that was really lovely to see and of course you're probably watching somebody who's murdered someone 
talking like that. Well, yeah, I was going to say it depends. I mean, I think it depends. Some people are so <laughs> some people are so far gone that it's like they probably killed a dog. You know, like they uh, there are people like that who are just completely twisted. But yeah, um, but they, I think you know. that's very rare. I think that's very rare, though. Yeah, I think most people, you know, to, to greater and lesser extents are redeemable, and you, you'd have to do some work, maybe uh, more work with some than with others, to get them to a place where they're able to to sort of cope emotionally and function. Yeah. Um, but you know, w- what are the alternatives? You know, I think that if you just leave them in a, in a cell to think it over, um, it's not likely to fix itself. You know, there's gotta be yeah. something done to rehabilitate. So anyway, it, it's not very compassionate either. And I think like a lot of people who commit crime, you know, most, most crime isn't this extremely violent crime. And you, you have to think like, the person I know that was a sexual offender who had that happen to them that, um, you know, I've never committed, committed a crime that I know. And, but I had a really good upbringing and I have a, a great family and I feel very supported. And there are, you know, most, most people who end up in prison aren't very supportive um, and didn't have a great family. And so it's interesting. I was reading about Sweden and the the kind of Scandinavia model of prisons and how the way that they see prisoners and uh, criminals are that they see that they committed crime to be a failing of the society that they have all created together. So it's their job to rehabilitate these people. And so that's the attitude that they bring to designing their prisons. And um, I thought that was really cool. You'd yeah. have to have a massive cultural shift to, I was gonna to say, feel that way in that's the UK. Way, that's, way too, <laughs> that's way too sane for the United States. I feel like the United States <laughs> would be offended by the sanity of that, uh, of that approach, you know, and then like to, to even suggest that there might be collective responsibility, um, you oh know, my God. forget yeah. about it. Especially with your, your current commander in chief. <laughs> I, I was thinking when you were saying that everything was gray and things are complex, that you see everything as gray. Um, that I just listened to last night's Rachel Maddow and her excerpts that she had obtained of a warning by Anonymous, the um, official in the Trump White House. And uh, I was like just shocked. And obviously I don't think much of Trump anyway, but that um, the, the part where she was describing that or the author was describing that they used to bring in briefings to the president. But then he said, like, I don't like all these words, bring in pictures. <laughs> and then he was like, there are too many things in this PowerPoint presentation, uh, fewer pictures. Yeah. <laughs> and just that, like, somebody so simplistic with such a simplistic worldview, you know, it, it isn't going to solve any problems because, as you say, these things are complex mm. and th- everything is kind of gray. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I saw the same, I mean, I saw the show that you're talking about as much as I could tolerate. I have very, (laughs) I have very, uh, mixed feelings to say the least about this anonymous person, like put a name on it, like step out of the, step out of the shadows and be a hero, you know, but I feel like there's uh, some cowardice involved in witnessing all of this and hiding behind the cloak of anonymity, you know, when you could step forward and make an actual difference. Um, you know, that said, I'm not surprised in the least to know that behind the scenes, it's a complete shit show and everybody's terrified and feels abused. I mean, I don't, yeah. I didn't need anonymous to tell me, you know, that he's an abusive nutball who doesn't, yeah. uh, doesn't like to read, you know, like I'm not shocked somehow. 
Yeah. I, I, what really chilled me was some of the quotations of him being like, this is really cool. This is great. Look at this graphic. This is brilliant. And being like, Jesus Christ, (laughs) this is, it is like, it is like, it, it was really the kind of like description of that person and their colleagues is like, we are babysitters glorified babysitters that really chilled me to the core there's a fairly compelling (laughs) argument that there's some sort of uh some sort of uh cognitive decline whether it's dementia or you know that's so interesting yeah i mean there's you know it gets a little bit conspiracy theory um but i think there are some fairly compelling arguments to be made you know you'll see doctors and psychologists on twitter and elsewhere talking about um you know the mental state and the way in which he walks and, you know, is clutching the podium. And, you know, I don't think he is necessarily, you know, in peak physical and mental condition. Let's just put it that way. And so I don't know one way or the other because we, you know, he won't allow a proper medical exam, it seems like, to, to happen. But it wouldn't surprise me if after the fact we learned that, mm. you know, his his uh, mental faculties were um, compromised by some sort of degenerative disease and that the people in the white house who were working around him were functioning not only to sort of, uh, you know, plug the, I don't know, you know what I'm saying? Like trying to do triage or whatever as mm. the guy is, is flailing about, but that they were also essentially functioning like, uh, orderlies at a nursing home trying to kind of contain him. Like that's kind of how it seems to me. He's, he's just, uh, he's not all there. Uh, I, I'm not, I, um, you you may be right, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say though that that sounds very much to me like people just don't want to believe that somebody could be like that. <laughs> that might and, be. That might be. <laughs> and it feels to me like Trump has always been like that. He's always been. I think it's. I'm. I really believe. Like I, I really believe that gender is an issue. How we treat and perceive people because of gender, because of our perceptions of what gender is, is a problem that runs under everything i mean Mm. it certainly affects trump it certainly affects somebody like putin who's like photographed on a horse (laughs) (laughs) bare-chested but i also think that class is something that um, we really don't talk about it that much in britain and there was this amazing book called the class ceiling that came out earlier this year um, that was talking about how class um, affects the workplace so much more than actually anything else that we discuss as a social problem um, and I, I, I really believe, I think it's insane sometimes, you know, when you're in these situations where you do meet somebody who is from the, uh, silver spoon class, the super upper, you know, here, they're aristocrats, um, and their, their worldview is, and their way of being is so different from, anybody you've ever met and i look at trump and i think that to me seems like a class problem he is used to getting what he wants he's used to just saying let's do it he's used to being surrounded by yes people and why wouldn't he be he's always had this money he's always been in charge of things he's never worked for it because it was his dad's money and we know that really he's just he's never really made any money he's actually just lost money but he's always had money so he's never had to work hard do well think through something he's never had to change his mind on on something because nobody challenges him and he's 
he, so you you can't believe that somebody like that could become very talented or intellectually able and i i, I just think he's a he's a guy who you know likes to watch fox news and and not do much mm. and throw out the occasional you know what he probably sees as a brilliant flash of instinct and cunning <laughs> yeah yeah and um i don't i don't uh, disagree I think that's the way he behaves now so i think it might be exacerbated by i think all of the stuff you're talking about has been with him through the decades you know he's always been mm. an a supreme narcissist and uh, an abuser, you know, n none of that stuff is new. I think maybe it could be argued that with age and with uh, mental decline, some of his worst impulses have been exacerbated. And even if that's not the case, just the stresses of the job and the situation <laughs> yeah. that he's in. I was, I was going to say, maybe it's just really stressful for him. <laughs> right. This is not something that he's particularly talented at or born to do. He's just in a, in a job that just really doesn't suit him. And it's so difficult to get out of it. And for Trump, I mean, he can't walk away. And I honestly think, and I think I, I thought this a year ago, like he probably really wants to leave, but can't. <laughs> it's probably like, oh, this is this is crap. All day I have these people coming in and like telling me things. This is really annoying. I wish I wasn't in this situation. You know, F off everybody. Like I'm not going to do this anymore. But he can't walk away because that would be losing. And 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 that's those are the terms he thinks in winners and losers, men and and weaklings that aren't men. And um you know, I I think he's just got himself in a situation where he's not really capable of dealing with, and it, it's as you say, exacerbating his his worst impulses and behavior. Well, with what fine times we live in, right? <laughs> right, and we have Boris Johnson, so I, I'm not saying in any way that you know, oh, you America. Like, no, I mean I feel like just as culpable and just as stupid. We, can I can I ask you since I have. Um you know, uh, a British person here on the line with me, like what is going to happen with Brexit? Have we achieved any clarity? <laughs> I'm, I'm like surprised that you didn't bring it up the, within the first five minutes. I was thinking when we were going to talk, I was thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to be asked about Brexit. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so no, we haven't achieved any clarity. Um, they voted in, I think, February that um, government voted that we couldn't take a no deal. So in theory, that is off the table. There's a piece of legislation that says we can't have a no deal Brexit, which means for maybe some of your listeners who haven't been following, um, we're leaving the European Union. There was a referendum and we voted and we are going to leave the European Union. But if we leave with a deal, what that means is that we still maybe keep some of our working rights that the European Union have written because Actually, the European Union has far better legislation in terms of environmental legislation, um, uh, workers' rights legislation, um, even some things with healthcare. Uh, and we're going to lose all of those at the moment. Um, and it means that if we had a deal, there would be some some kind of relationship with trade worked out. Um Obviously, like over the past few years, we've lost plenty of European investors because we're not stable in the way that we used to be. I think Britain was seen as somewhere you could put your money that nothing was going to happen because it's a very stable country. Um, we're not seen, seen like that anymore. And obviously, we've we've just made an enemy of everybody in Europe. And it's super embarrassing for people that might <laughs> remain. Um, so uh, we didn't want to leave with no deal. 
And some people were saying, because we had this deadline earlier in the year, that we should just leave with no deal and, you know, just cut ties. Um, the government voted that we can't do that. So um, Boris Johnson took over the leadership of the Conservative Party. And because they're the ruling party in government, he was then in charge of getting, was Prime Minister and was then in charge of getting Brexit through. Note, he's never been elected by the UK population. Um, he didn't manage to do it. So the deadline was supposed to be October 31st. Um, and instead, because he um, couldn't, he kind of said he was talking to Europe and that was a lie. He wasn't talking to them. And then when he did talk to them, he really brought back a deal, which was really similar to Theresa May's deal, the previous prime minister, and was just, again, not good for British people, particularly with regards to working rights. Hmm. Um, and uh, so it wasn't voted in and, um, so he's called a general election and and the uh, the government did um, vote almost unanimously, I think, for the general election to happen. And it's on December 12th. And basically the idea is that he's attempting to get a majority because the Conservative Party for the past couple of elections actually haven't they've not had a majority um, since Labour had a majority under Tony Blair. Um, it's been a conservative government in a coalition with Lib Dems. And um, then they were in a coalition with the DUP. Um, actually, I might be wrong. I think they had a majority under Cameron for a little while. Anyway, um, so he's trying to get more MPs, um, more conservative MPs in. And the idea being that the election is kind of like another referendum because all the government and BBC News and Channel 4 News and our big media outlets are talking about is Brexit. So if you vote right wing, um, the Tory party, the Conservatives, same party, um, you're voting to leave the European Union. If you vote Labour, which is a centre left party, um, and they're kind of like the Democrats, um, you're voting for a second referendum because it's now been three years since the first one. And some people who voted for the refer for uh, us to Brexit are now dead. <laughs> and there are some people who've now come of age and can vote. Um, and so I, I didn't really back that for a while. But now I feel like it's been such a long time that it, we have a slightly different population and maybe we should vote again. Um, the Lib Dems don't want to leave at all. They want to just ignore the referendum. They're another centre-left party. Yeah. Sorry, that's a massive... Uh... No, I'm glad, I'm glad, because I think a lot of people who don't necessarily tune into British politics would have this kind of like abstract sense of what Brexit means. Just got a, a nice education. <laughs> I would say, like, my instinct is that there should be a, re a redo, like a do-over. Even if you're a person who wants to leave, um, if you, I think if you have um, scruples... You would say that the wouldn't you say that the referendum was poisoned and that there was disinformation and possibly interference? Yeah. I mean, it seems like yes. it wasn't a fair fight, you know, and there was all this social right. media gaming and all, a lot of the same stuff that happened here. Yeah. So something as consequential as Brexit, if it wasn't a clean vote, then even somebody who voted f for leave, you know, would hopefully say, hey, listen, let's let's make sure the will of the people is actually expressed like that would be the ideal anyway. 
I think that's a, you know, the ideal argument. And I hope lots of people listen to this in the UK. Um, I, <laughs> I have a huge, I really, huge I, audience in the UK. So I'm sure the entire nation will tune in. Amazing. They have great taste. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I So we did have, um, we purported, I, I think it's pretty, you know, accepted that there was Russian interference um, with the Brexit vote and the campaign and, and on social media. Um, but also the Leave campaign just lied, lied outright. And uh, we know that now. And you're right, we're not doing anything about it. So, I, I mean, that's interesting. I, I think it would be great if people would make the argument for a second referendum um, on the basis of those things. But I feel like that we all just are like, okay, well, we will lie to. And I, <laughs> it seems like nothing is being done about that particularly. So there's a report um, that is complete and ready to go and ready to be released about how Brexit was affected by Russian interference. But Boris Johnson, the Conservative Prime Minister, is actually sitting on it, and he's not going to release it before the election. Hmm. So obviously that tells you maybe something about the contents. I mean, you know, these people, the, it, you know, it's, it's, it feels very familiar. Let's just put it that way. Like just an sure. abs- absolute total lack of uh, any kind of moral sense. Yeah, there's um, this great, I'm sure you've read her, but a Turkish writer Oh my God, I'm, I, I don't know how to pronounce her name because I've only read it. But is it Essay Tamil Curran? She wrote this book, How to Lose a Country. And um, it is about Erdogan, Erdogan. Erdogan. Oh my God. It's Erdogan. Her, yeah, yeah. I've made that. I've, I've said that before. I had a. <laughs> who did I have? I had uh, Elif uh, Badaman on. She's like Turkish. And I called him Erdogan. And she was like, it's Erdogan. So <laughs> that's, that's how yeah. I know. <laughs> I mean, it's. Yeah. Um, so. The book is about Erdogan and Turkey and um, everything that happened there. And it's called How to Lose a Country. And it's about sort of how their democracy was once a, a, you know, a great democracy, but is being eaten away. Hmm. And um, she was saying in the book that she goes to the US and she goes particularly to London. This was post, post the Brexit vote, I think. And she tells them, about her country and about what happened there. And everybody says, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. How can we help you? Oh, no. And she says, no, no, you don't understand. I'm here to warn you. I'm here to talk about your country and what is happening there. And, um, yeah, I think I think people are, I don't know how we can be in denial, but I, I, I you know, we, we had a t- couple of world wars in the last century and then we had a, the Cold War and, you know, bad shit's been happening <laughs> just because bad shit i think doesn't happen to you in your living room in kind of like this is in the uk situation i think we feel quite comfy and we're like no no it'll be fine right, right. um it's not necessarily going to be fine and i um a month ago i was like completely freaking out and i, I was mentioning to i watched the hbo program chernobyl mm. um which was just beautiful i loved it and I, I watched it a couple of times and it was so cleverly done and Although I did think that they should have got actors from Ukraine. Um, but it made me, I was saying to my partner, oh my God, we've got to get a Geiger counter. I don't know. I don't trust these people. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, like you can catastrophize, but it's not like it's not within the realm of possibility 
that one of the um, big men in charge could do something very big manish that's catastrophic for a lot of people. And obviously, we've kind of seen that with the Kurds um, and Trump and Turkey and people are dying because of some impulse that he has and he's not going to listen to anyone else. That's right. That's right. You know, and I feel like, uh, you know, there are certain elements of a population that are media literate and engaged and trying to figure out what's going on. And, uh, you know, it's not necessarily always easy. You know, I think these things are confusing, confusing and complicated inherently and by design. I think, Mm, you know, there's a, there's a strategy at work to want people to be uh, discombobulated and confused. And there's a lot of different moving parts. And, um, that said, you know, I feel like sometimes, uh, you know, the people I see online who have been chirping the loudest about this going all the way back to the election, um, you know, they're like canaries in a coal mine and, you know, it's part of the anxiety that I think a lot of us feel is the lag time between that particular chirping and people sounding the alarms and pointing out what's happening and the general population and the, and the mainstream press uh, getting wise to it and being willing to say the, the truth plainly, you know, and I, I don't even know if we're quite there yet, but hopefully we're getting closer. Yeah, I feel like. God, it's so interesting comparing the USA with the UK because they're such different beasts. Um, And I feel like in the USA, you have a huge group of quite extreme right wing people and and also an equally large group of people who are, are really quite socialist and interesting in the way that they're thinking. And, you know, I've been watching the Democratic national debates and um it is it i'm not <laughs> is it andrew yang yeah uh, yeah who's been talking about and i think he, he um so the green party over here are, are talking about the uh giving a wage to everybody who's a citizen the citizen's wage i'm not sure what he calls it but i heard him Univer- made a Univer- universal basic income yes and i heard him made make an a really gorgeously articulate argument for how that money stays in a community and lifts that community out of poverty and creates a local economy um we have that same idea out here it's in the green party's manifesto in the uk um but they are not in power and nobody is standing on a stage with an attempt to be a presidential candidate saying that kind of thing so I, i think it's really cool hearing you know, the the kind of things that Elizabeth Warren talks about and the conversation at the moment there is is super interesting and progressive and but then in the UK you you were not poles apart. People are generally gathered around a center and very willing to flip. I mean, there are people who vote conservative who might vote Labour at this election because they don't like what's happening. Um my parents who both come from um union towns, they grew up with not very much money and and they're very left but they voted for maggie thatcher when the the unions kind of got a little bit out of control in the in the late 70s and and so we're it's it's just we're really different and we have this class system and you also have a class system but ours is about people who have been rich for hundreds of of years Mm -hmm. sometimes a thousand years and their children are still running everything 
And it's not acknowledged because that's just the way things are here. And we have a royal family and our media acts as like their PR guy, you know, on BBC News when wherever they're going or whatever they're doing, we have like an update on what the royal family are doing. And you're like, man, this is this is crazy. We, we don't even question this kind of stuff. And I wonder whether like you have Trump and I think that your culture and your system allows somebody like Trump to rise. But at the same time, you have such passionate people and your culture and your system also allows for people to fight that person and for people to talk, like talk out about that kind of thing. And, and we really don't have, we have like two mouthpieces, the BBC news and channel four news, and they are run by the same upper middle class people who decided to be in tv instead of government and some right. of their friends went into government and they went into tv right and when you were talking about like how sometimes it's designed so you don't understand what they're talking about on i i think a lot of people who work for the news it's kind of a basic thing that they don't really know what they're talking about because they've never really had to try to get these jobs they were just waiting there for them so they're sat there they don't know what they're talking about but in order to know to look like they know what they're talking about they don't explain more basic things to you they're like of course everybody knows about this and then they kind of continue their their news report and they like if if they don't know something they just nod and smile as if they do and it, it like we really have this fucking toxic class culture here um and everybody at the top is pretending i think that they're in control and I, <laughs> and um, that they they know what's happening, and I, I just don't see how we are going to question what's happening here in the way now that you're impeaching your president and <laughs> the way that your um, Democratic candidates for president speak. Uh, I'm not sure that that's going to happen here. Well, I was going to say, do you have a sense of how the December election is going to go? Um, so the Tories are by far ahead in the polls. Um, Labour at 26%. I think the Tories are like 32 or 3. And, um... But what does that mean? I mean, the, the, I think wasn't Brexit winning, you know, the Remain was winning by four points or five points going into the referendum. So who knows? So, yeah. So, yes, exactly. And I think, uh, again, I think pulses in the UK come from the same upper middle class bubble. And it's really hard to comment on yourself, you know, what's happening when I think you don't live um, a life that the majority of people in the UK live. Six percent of the population of the UK go to private school um, and then 80 percent of the commissioners at um, our major um, TV channels are from private schools. And so I, I think that they don't have that same kind of insight. Um, I look at 538 if I want to know what's going to happen in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> just like desperately. And I'm waiting like, for them just, to come out with something. Yeah. Just tell I just need some math nerd to tell me the future. Yeah. See, I, I think that probably the conservatives are going to uh, win or be able to form a coalition government with them as the kind of leading party. Um, because particularly because the districts are so gerrymandered in favor of conservative politicians. If I think it's something like 34,000 people vote in a Tory politician, 45 vote in Labour, and then mm. like 1.5 million vote in a Green person. We don't have proportional representation. We vote, vote in people in districts, I think in the same way that you guys do. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds familiar. Yeah. 
And um, so I think the Tories will win. However, there's a lot going on. (laughs) And um, there's this party called the Brexit Party, which is like the phoenix that has risen out of the ashes of UKIP. And they are gathering a lot of votes. It doesn't look like they're going to get anyone in government. But say if you're a district where it's you're a bellwether district, you could go Labour or Tory because those are the main parties. That's where people usually go. And the Tories are probably going to win. But then the Brexit party, who are also right wing, take away a lot of the Tory votes. Um, and and then maybe the Labour candidate wins. So something like that could happen. And I think it's kind of all, <laughs> it's all to play for. The last election, Theresa May was prime minister. And um, I think they went into the election campaign with a 20-point lead and they ended up with a two-point lead. Um, so you just don't know what's going to happen. It's very I think volatile. We, we are, yeah, it's very volatile. We're all pretty ready to flip. There's not a lot of party loyalty anymore. Um, I would usually vote one way, but I'm going to vote tactically this election. Uh, I would really like to see a Labour government, but uh, it's I would prefer to see actually a liberal coalition. Um, and what really frustrates me about Labour is that they always say that they won't make a coalition with anyone. Um, and I just don't think they can be that confident anymore <laughs> because they lost Scotland to, I mean, this is a, a thing that I'm pretty sure a lot of Americans won't have followed. But in the 2015 election, the Scottish National Party um pretty much took Scotland and they came out of nowhere and their whole agenda was based on the idea that they wanted Scotland to cede from um, the United Kingdom and not to be governed by the UK anymore. Um, If I was Scottish, I would have voted yes, because uh, our government is extremely London centric. As I said, there's a real class problem Um, and England is very right wing. So lots of the decisions that get made are quite conservative or centrist because you have to kind of come over to that side. And um, uh, a lot of Scottish people were like, you know what? (laughs) We're over this. We want to remain in the European Union no matter what you do with Brexit. So um, so the SNP is their party up there now. And they lost some seats in the last election, but I think they are probably going to gain a lot of them back because Scottish people want to stay in the European Union. And the SNP lost some of those seats to the Conservative Party, but the Conservative Party are very much a leave party. So those seats are likely to swing back, um, which is another reason that the Tory party might not be even though the polls suggest that lots of people will vote for them, they might not be in as good shape as that appears. Well, we're going to find out soon, right? It's about a month away. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I love electoral politics. I really enjoy following them. I, I wish they hadn't called a snap election, but I'm excited. Yeah, I was going to say you're tuned in. I feel a sense of kinship because I, I sometimes <laughs> wonder if it's like a character flaw. Like I'm like I really am invested in following politics, and I have friends who just couldn't care less, and and friends who are very smart. You know what I'm saying? Like these are brilliant like artists and whatever they do. And I'm like maybe I'm the fool for being this uh you know this what is the word for it? Not entertained, but uh, interested in. Oh my, I, I think it's entertain, entertained sometimes, <laughs> yeah, right. but I, I will, I will like, you know, get on one of those, um, the kind of phone train where you hop on at a carriage where you're like, I'm just going to look up, um, the MP for the place where I'm 
I'm going to move and just just see what their history was like. Oh, they were involved in this scandal. I'm just going to read about this scandal. Oh, now I'm going to go into the next carriage on the train and read about the opposition MP. I can do that all night long. Yeah. It, it, it's completely interesting and entertaining for me. I, I think I'm I, I'm passionate about politics because I really believe like the policies that you have, as we were talking about with like crime and masculinity, like they underpin the people that you become and it, ma- it matters, right? I mean, that's what I always, matters, that's, that's always yeah. my argument. It's like, look, the, how fast you can drive, who can yeah. vote, you know, what the prison yeah. system is like. All of this stuff comes down to electoral politics. So, yeah. And it's also like sports for thinkers. It's, it, you know, it's like <laughs> the Super Bowl. Election night is the Super Bowl. Yes. My mom kept me up when I was 10 years old. Um, New Labour got in in 1997, and we had had a conservative government since 1979, I think. And, um, you know, Maggie Thatcher had dismantled the unions, and um, working people were in a pretty bad way, and people really wanted this Labour government. And um, so I, she kept, she kept me up and I was 10 and we like slept on the living room or like laid on the living room floor and I made notes of um, all the districts as they were called and and then um, at like 5am or something I was like nodding off and she started screaming and she picked me up and threw me up in the air and she was like yeah they won they won and then they played like things can only get better (laughs) and you know it didn't turn out to be quite the government that we wanted it to be in the end but that ignited my um, like sense of entertainment yeah. and also curiosity and interest in particularly electoral politics. And I've, I've watched every UK and US election since then because those are the ones that are televised in hmm. the UK. <laughs> well, I'm right there with you. I'm like, you know, I think next year is going to be crazy. Um, the amount mm, of, what the, did... the amount of energy Sorry. and just, uh, the, oh, yeah. the, the tension is going to be, uh, interesting to watch and experience. So what, what did you think, firstly, two questions, what did you think when you were watching the Hillary Trump election? Did you think she would win? Like, how did you feel? And then also, like, who are you excited about candidates-wise for the Dems this year? I thought that it's, you know, I was just going by, like, the the polls, you know, it seemed like she would win in a close election, but I wasn't I wasn't certain. I didn't have a sense of certainty. And I actually threw a party on election day in the room that I'm standing in. Now we had a bunch of friends over and we were all watching the returns come in and I was very nervous and I was surrounded by people who were very certain that Hillary's was going to win. Yeah. And I just remember when Pennsylvania came back, I think it was Pennsylvania. I just like turned, I turned white as a ghost and I was just like, Oh, Yeah. Uh, and that was that was maybe the, that's the biggest downer of a party that I've ever thrown, which uh, <laughs> yeah. I hope I hope I never I hope I never exceed, uh, you know, that one. I think I'll probably do it again, maybe like burn some sage and try to like drive out the evil spirits before we. Uh, yeah, it's not jinx the upcoming. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I shouldn't do it. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe maybe it's all my fault. But I uh, yeah, I, I felt that there was a possibility that something could go sideways. And look, you know, here's the here's what I also think. I think she did win. Not only did she win the popular vote mm. by a significant margin, but I firmly believe that she got cheated and that Trump cheated with the help of Russia and that it definitely swung the election. Um, I'm not, you know, yeah, yeah. there are people who disagree, uh, including people who support 
or supported Hillary or, you know, they're not Trump supporters who they think that, yeah. that he, he won somehow. But I, you know, when you look at the electoral college and you look at the states that decided it for him and you look at the margin of victory in those states, yeah. you know, it was like 70,000 votes total. Um, it was, it was a very mm-hmm. small number of votes that ultimately decided the thing. And then you look at the, it always go on. No, I was just going to say, you look at the, the level of, uh, propaganda that was, um, you know, and, um, the psychological warfare that was perpetrated on American voters via social media. Mm-hmm. You look at the voter polls, um, the polling data that Paul Manafort handed over, which we know, you know, he handed that data over, um, and it was weaponized, you know, it's not at all a stretch for me to believe that 70,000 people in these different States could have been, uh, incentivized or, um, you know, uh, driven to the polls by the information that was showing up on their screens or whatever. Um, sure. that seems totally, totally feasible to me. So, yeah. Yeah. Scary times. I, it's, it has always seemed strange to me that the USA has the electoral college and a popular vote. It's like, because obviously you elect the president with the electoral college, the popular vote just seems like this thing where it's like, and now we see how wrong we were. Yeah, you know, it's because it comes up. in later as well. It's, You're yeah. like, okay, we have a president. Let's just wait and see if we were correct. No, it's an, it's. But an, we're not going to change it. No, we're not going to change it. We're just going to see. It's an antiquated. <laughs> it's an antiquated system, in my view. I don't know. Like we're the only Western democracy, I think, that does it, even remotely, in a manner like this, which is insane. It's like. If you're going to have a, a democracy, uh, you know, have a vote. Whoever gets the most votes wins. I don't see why mm. it should be otherwise. But, uh, you know, welcome. it just seems like a very complicated way to do something that's pretty simple. Really. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, and it's, I mean, it's like, you know, I'm not an expert on it. I wish I had a better like uh, fluency in terms of the history of the Electoral College. But it has to do with um, slavery. It goes back to um you know, wanting to preserve, um, you know, representation for states with populations where newly freed slaves, I think were, I don't know, I'm going to fuck it up by trying to um, describe it. I did not know that. I didn't know it was related to that. Yeah. I mean, it has its roots there. Um, You know, I'm going to have to go, go to Wikipedia and pay my penance and learn exactly why I hate it so much. But I think mostly it's just frustrating because, you know, the, it feels like the will of the people is thwarted when the, like a significant, yeah. when a significant yeah. majority of voters say one thing and the election goes to the other guy, which has yeah. happened incidentally, you know, it happened with uh, George Bush and Al Gore. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was going to say, it's amazing that this has happened twice within 20 years and no one's saying, maybe we should change the system. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm doesn't sa- doesn't I, appear to work. I'm saying it. Well, you're right saying now. it. <laughs> I've, decla- I've <laughs> yeah. declared it. <laughs> okay. Um, well, listen, to... I uh, I love talking to you. This has been awesome. I I guess we should it's end good. with some uh, some more like a you know by talking about dead girls a bit more. Um, oh oh sure. Just so that people <laughs> yeah people remember that that uh, you know you got this novel out and. Um, you know, it's it's a period piece in a way. Uh, you know, you're writing uh, about the 90s, which is the what I guess the the time of your own youth, and so you have a sense of uh, authenticity. But um, that was the choice. You know, the creative choice to set the book in the 90s was so that you would have um, a genuine frame of reference for how a child might see the world uh, during that yeah, period. I'm, I'm really obsessed with um, authenticity. 
I think, you know, in life as well as in books. And I want to be as authentic as possible when I'm talking about something. And so I just really didn't feel like I could talk about um, girls and boys growing up today because I think social media has changed people's landscapes so much. And I have, I actually have teenage cousins. I'm the oldest um, grandchild. I'm the oldest of one generation on, on my dad's side. And um, so I have cousins who are 22 down to 15. And yeah, some of the some of their experiences are really similar to mine. But I can't imagine what it would be like to grow up with social media. And so I set it in 1999, where the character would have been roughly my age. Um, and I, I want to like, I really don't actually want to speak for um, girls who are girls today, I want to encourage them to speak for themselves. And so you know, I, this is, this is about my girlhood and I'm sure, and I hope that it will encourage people to consider their own 11 year old selves as worthy protagonists of a, you know, dramatic horror crime story where she's really the captain of her own ship. (laughs) Well, I, uh, I applaud you, you know, it's a, it's a great book and I'm glad that, uh, we get a chance to spotlight it in the book club and it's just fun talking with you i wish uh you know i guess you were in la for a while but now you're back in the uk and you've got this uh you know this exciting new life with your performance artist uh partner phil is that his name what's his name can we find his him his name's on- phil yeah yeah oh we're- yeah you can he's at lying prone on instagram okay um just as it sounds he um yeah, I, I think his stuff's really cool. <laughs> well, I feel like we should. I'm I think Phil. Biased. I think Phil needs to do some sort of performance art around the uh, the election coming up somehow to get Boris Johnson's attention. I don't know what that would mean, but I'm 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 voting for Phil to do something naked to... and with blood pouring down his head and just outside the houses of Parliament, <laughs> and right. everyone stops because they don't know what it means, but they have to think about it. There we go. That like, would be great. That would yeah. be great. Well, it's uh, yeah. it's awesome talking I... with you, Abby. Thank you so much for the uh, the time. Oh, I, thank you. Thank you to you. This has been such a great chat. It's just like a friend called me up and I'm just having a phone call on my Friday evening. Of course, it's uh, past nine at night here for me. So <laughs> it just seems like I'm just chilling out. Um, uh, but I wanted to say as well that um, if I am ever in L.A. for an election night, can I come to your party? Because, yes. you know, I don't know that many people there, so I, I wouldn't know where to go. And it would be really I would really enjoy it, I think. No, I, I am a good person to watch an election with because I'm I pay attention. So it's like it's like watching sports with somebody yes. who knows the teams, you know, and like has a sense yeah. of outcome. So if if you come to the United States for the election in 2020, which for a, a fan of politics might be like a worthy vacation like in a, a weird cool way. holiday, yes, <laughs> or at oh, least no, like a, an, I, an interesting one. Yeah, my holidays are incredibly geeky. I've recently been to Cuba and China just because I'm really interested in communist countries <laughs> and I want to see how they work and how it feels like to be in them. So um, that sounds great. I will see you in 2020. Yeah, if you if you're here, just give me a holler and we'll uh, we'll sit sit around just like drinking whiskey and you know being nervous oh, amazing <laughs> and, and it's really great because i i hate it when people like talk and have fun and i'm like Shh, yes just watch coming in yes, Did, yes let's let's listen to adam schiff <laughs> he's so good he's my congressman by the way he's uh really yes he represents me and i could not be more pleased 
Oh, um, I love him. Yeah. I love him. And I was so sorry to hear about Elijah Cummings. I, they were my favorites. Yep. I just love those guys. Yeah, yeah. no, Elijah Cummings. Uh, that was a surprise to me because I didn't have a sense. Yeah. Maybe I was missing it, but there was not really an announcement that he was ill, you know? Uh, no, there wasn't. Um, yeah. But that was super sad and a big loss because he, you know, in, a, in such an amoral time, yeah. he's a person who, you know, really held the line and had yeah. just such like a palpable decency yeah. about him. I, every time I heard him, you know, every time he opened his mouth, he just spoke the absolute truth. Like, boys and girls, be quiet. This is what's going on. And mm. this is, I just, it, I, I was so upset. And like you, I, I actually um, listened to, I, I follow American politics. And I, I listen to um, Politico and, and I listen to Rachel Maddow. Um, every night so I I kind of follow American politics in that way and um, I yeah had no sense that there was anything wrong and it was just such a shock yeah. and it uh, must have been like terrible for all of his colleagues especially at at a time like this I mean I felt very bad for John McCain that you know when he was sick and you know knew he was dying that obviously like yes he's a Republican but he never wanted to see somebody like Trump in power and like to be go to be leaving at a time when you're just helpless to change things and you don't know where it's going to go. And I, I, you know, you feel so bad for people like to be leaving the party, particularly at this point, this is not a good time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 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 For people who are like people of conscience, you know, who can actually make a difference. Uh, mm. it's a big loss whenever anybody like that leaves. And you, know, you yeah. talk about people who have like strength of character and, um, you know, a, like a, just a decency and, a, yeah. a, se- a sense of, uh, morality about them. I think of Elijah Cummings when he was questioning Michael Cohen, um, remember when he reduced him to tears? I don't know if you yeah. remember this, but he said, basically, this was when Michael Cohen had been convicted and was getting ready to go up to prison in upstate New York or wherever it is. And, um, Elijah Cummings like looked at him in the open hearing and he said, you know, look, I saw you interacting with your daughter and that really hit me. And he said something like very compassionate where he's like, look, you know, I know this is going to suck for you. Um, you know, you're at this place in your life where things have gone sideways essentially. And, um, hopefully this moment will, you know, in the time that you spend in prison is going to lead you to becoming the kind of man that, you know, he starts saying this and Michael Cohen just starts bawling. Remember that? Like, I was like, Wow, that's just not something you typically see um, from a politician. It's not something you yeah. see in, with people in general, especially people with divergent viewpoints and everything. But yeah, um, I thought it just captured the kind of human being that Elijah Cummings is, you know, and the fact yeah. that the fact that even a guy who's as um, tangled up as Michael Cohen has been, he's, you know, for somebody who's lost their way as badly as him. Uh, you know, when he was confronted with a guy like Elijah Cummings, he he sort of crumpled, you know, in a in a sweet way. Yeah. You know, I thought that was a an instructive moment. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it, it. I think it was partly Elijah Cummings' words, and it was partly that there. I mean, M- Michael Cohen must just live in a bubble of bullshit, right? <laughs> and then to have somebody speak with such compassion and honesty. I think it is was probably a shock. Right. And um yeah, 
Well, he, he, cer- he, cer- he certainly People wasn't like getting it. He certainly world. wasn't getting it from Trump, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. He was probably just being treated awfully. Uh-huh. And then to think like, yeah, yeah, it was that that was very beautiful. Well, and and is is very hopeful. It is, um, and is very I, ho- hopeful that people like that exist, and sad that he's gone. But well, yeah, I agree, and hopefully we'll have uh, you know people will step up in his absence. But yeah, um, you know, for somebody sure. who who likes politics like myself or likes to you know uh, pay attention to it and see what's going on, even though things are fairly dire and uh, tenuous and difficult, there's going to be plenty. There's going to be plenty to uh, watch and witness and parse and try to make sense of in the days ahead. So, uh, sure. Good luck with everything. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And congr- I am excited to see how it unfolds. Yeah, you and me both in a weird way. You know, I'm like kind yeah. of uh, white knuckling it, but um, you know, yeah, I, I cross do have fingers. I mean, people. Are, it's like like we said, the, the people are very unpredictable here. Who knows what will happen? Right. Um, and that that is exciting. Yes, I feel the same way. I think people who have a sense of certainty, especially at this early stage, you know, it's still early. Uh, people who have some sort of s- sense of certainty about how the electorate is or is is not uh, are playing a fool's game. You know, I mean, have we sure. have we learned nothing yep. from recent pa- the recent <laughs> past? I mean, this is wide open, um, and so I think people should feel a sense. Um, a sense of possibility as opposed to a sense of foreclosure or definitiveness. So, uh, we'll see. And, uh, I feel like maybe you should write something about politics. It sounds like you are, are you working on a book about prisons? You said, yes, I have just handed it into my, um, agent, um, who is in New York. I switched agents recently. Um, and, uh, I'm hoping that she likes this draft. She liked the last draft. And I, I have done what she asked me to do. So I'm really hopeful. Well, then <laughs> that, she, be, she better um, like it. She'll be selling it soon. And so I guess it'll be out in a year or a year and a bit, something like that. But it's about um, thematically, it's about how why working class men in the UK uh, are the bulk of the prison population. And it's also a little bit about how, you know, how criminals are made as opposed to born and about there are, there are a couple of beats in the story, a couple of um, people in the story who say things like, um, I could be anything. Like, I'm capable of anything that a man can do. And I, I uh, that is the, like the theme of the whole book is that it is really like how you're raised and the things that are done to you that you learn from. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. Do we have a title? Welcome home, Bailey Collins. All right. Well, we will uh, we will wait, we will wait for that one. Hopefully, this Thanks. draft gets you closer. I mean, you feel like it's close to being done. Yeah, I do. I I was really pleased with this draft. Okay. She was great. She gave me fantastic notes. Okay. So, well, I wish good. I wish you luck with all of the above, and and maybe I'll Thank see you. you over here in the states next year. Cool. I mean, like you know, I'm warning you. I may well come. <laughs> Fair enough. It sounds fun. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, all Abby. Right. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for having me. Okay, guys, there you go. That is Abigail Tartelin, and her new novel is called Dead Girls, out there from Rare Bird Books, the official November pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Dead Girls by Abigail Tartelin. Go get your copy immediately. You can find Abigail online. She is she's very online, as the kids say. She's extremely online, I think is what they say. AbigailTartelin.com is the website. You can follow her on Twitter. 
her handle over there is uh wait what is it AJK Tartalin at AJK Tartalin she's on Facebook she's on YouTube she's on Instagram Goodreads she's got the whole thing going Abigail Tartalin dead girls go get it thanks to uh, Tiger in my tank for the interstitial music right there at the top of the interview you know that transitional music that's Tiger in my tank if you want to write to me if you have something to say to me you can write to me you can email me at letters at otherppl.com if you want to support this show I sure would appreciate that tip your server the uh, way to do that is patreon.com slash otherpplpod you can also get the uh, free Other People app. This program has its own app, the official Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Go get it. Why not, right? It's free. Unless you like don't have room on your phone or something. So, yeah. Uh, don't forget, too, you can listen to Abigail Tartalin's new podcast. It's called Election Schmelection. Do it now, as the uh, British uh, election is, like, looming. It's imminent. Any day now. Hopefully next week my back will be better. I'll be at full strength. Just gotta try to, um, you know, soldier on. My guest, speaking of soldiering on, this was an, that was an accidental segue, but I will be talking with the uh, great Tim O'Brien. So stay tuned for that. Okay? Happy holiday season. Hang in there. And, uh... What else do I want to say to you? Oh, wait. (laughs)